want to believe in the good. And in your own spiritual journey, your journey of faith, finding out what it is that you can trust, you should examine these other worldviews. You should examine Islam and Judaism and Christianity and Buddhism and Hinduism. Um, the Christian will claim, and I would claim, that the only God capable of adequately satisfying the demands of faith is the God of Jesus Christ. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Things You Don't Hear in Church podcast. My name is Ethan. And my name is Derry. And guys, as always, check us out on all social media platforms. We have a lot of extra content on TikTok, on Instagram, on YouTube, shorts, reels, TikToks, mm-hmm. as we said. You can go mm-hmm. check us out. We also have a Patreon if you want to subscribe. We're in the process of making shirts and getting merch out there, which is pretty cool. We've had stickers for a while, so if you want to buy some stickers, you can too. Um, and we'd love to hear your feedback. If you have any topics you want us to discuss, if there's anybody you want us to have on, We'd love to hear your feedback, so you can reach out on any of those platforms. You can also email us. All that information can be found on our link tree, on our Instagram, on our TikTok, YouTube, all over the mm-hmm. place. Yeah. yeah, and today we have a great episode, as always, oh, as we do on this show. Mm-hmm. Um, having a really fun guest on. Um, should be certified. I don't know if there's a certification for this, but probably is. A certified in my opinion, genius about Bible, philosophy, a bunch of stuff. A uh, friend of my father-in-law, actually, um, but teacher of our one of our Bible schools here mm. in Honolulu. He is a senior pastor and a teacher. He holds three degrees, philosophy, literature, and a master's in ancient Near Eastern and Jewish studies. So really well-educated um, gentleman named Chad Lewis. Welcome mm. to the show, Chad. Thank you for joining us. If there's anything I missed, please. No, it sounds good. I like the way you made me sound. <laughs> That's the goal. That's the goal. Yeah. Is there any anybody, anything we missed that you want to uh, add no, in there? Any books you've written? Uh, well, uh, sure. Um, I'm a published author. Right now I'm into fiction, so I just oh, recently cool. published a fiction work. It's sort of a horror novel called Norman's Descent. It just Whoa. came out in June uh, about a man who goes down into the netherworld to rescue his lost daughter and ends up in limbo where an evil demon has created a carnival to keep children in a state of perpetual infancy. Wow. Whoa. Um, so if you're interested, you can find that on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Um, yeah. So in addition to all the other technical stuff, I love art, I love music, I love literature. I just wow. like to do creative things. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Any biblical overtones in that in that book or just lots. for fun? Lots. Uh, lots. It's by Athos Press, and that is actually traditionally a Greek Orthodox press. Wow. Mm-hmm. Most of what they've published is um, just lives of saints and things like that. But mm-hmm. recently, they wanted to branch out into fiction, and I think my work is their flagship work. I'm wow. not 100% sure of that. But uh, it, it is a it's kind of creepy story. But it has a good, wholesome, redemptive ending. Hmm, so. Cool. That's awesome. How long is that book? For people oh, 250 pages or so. Cool. It's certainly yeah. uh, readable. It, there are parts of it that uh, are, uh, forgive me, a little philosophical. So mm. uh, once you get past the scary parts, uh, some of the passages can be challenging. Wow. That's awesome. I love that. I'll have to read it. Yeah, I, that I sounds... love like thriller, like horror, like right. fiction and stuff. I've never read any horror thriller stuff. I read like action stuff like the terminal okay. list yeah but that sounds really interesting um but uh, yeah yeah, yeah cool. i was gonna say um we're gonna be talking today about different philosophical <laughs> questions mm, um, biblical questions yeah biblical yeah. questions philosophical questions and that's what the whole podcast is about right answering yeah. hard questions about christianity yep. and so we have a list of different questions that we're going to go through um mm-hmm. regarding christian living christian thinking and uh chad lewis is a great resource to just bounce us uh, yeah. bounce these ideas off of he's been a teacher for many many years and so he's yeah. covered lots of questions and is definitely here to 
shed some light and help us out. So what's our first question? Yeah. Um, just going off of that, whenever we get into discussions with someone of this caliber, we love to just ask as many as we can so we can get like as many resources as we can at once. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So yeah, we're going to have a, a few questions we'll go over today. We'll see how much we can get through and the amount of time we have. Um, but yeah, we'll see where we go. The first question that I'd love to talk about, it's one that I've been thinking about a lot myself for quite a while. And uh, Chad actually brought it up while we we're just talking here. And we thought it'd be great to talk on the podcast about it. And that is like what role the Bible plays, right? What is the Bible? How has it maybe changed in our perception of how we use it, what we think it does over time, how different streams of Christianity, like Orthodox, Catholic, Protestants, how mm -hmm. we've viewed it. Um, so that can really go all over the place in the canonization right. into like how we view it. What do we think it does? What do we think it's places? Um, but is there anything you want to touch on? You think it's interesting about that topic? Uh, yeah, that, that's a very interesting question. I think particularly within Protestant circles, since Protestants in their break away from the Roman church, uh, place, uh, singular authority on the Bible, right? Uh, it creates a little bit of a confusion about how Christians have traditionally used this book. Hmm. We have to remember that in ancient Israel, for example, almost no one was literate. Nobody hmm. read and nobody wrote. And so, and that's true even in the New Testament era. Mm -hmm. So Christianity is not, strictly speaking, uh, a book religion, even mm -hmm. though it has become that over time. That being the case, uh, in ancient Israel, for example, people expressed their faith in and through rituals, hmm. public rituals, whether participation in the temple wow. or listening to public teaching of Levites and priests, and likewise in, in the early church. And so one of the things to bear in mind is that in Protestant circles, we sometimes use the Bible as a crutch, an epistemological crutch, hmm. as if we don't know what to believe and as if we don't know what the difference between right or wrong is, unless we find it in the Bible. Hmm. And I don't really know that that's why the Bible was there, because people certainly didn't depend on it primarily for answers to moral or intellectual questions in the past. Hmm. The most important feature of the Bible is not to serve as a crutch for our reason, because our reason is one of the ways um, we access the general revelation of God. Hmm. Uh, he reveals himself in creation. He reveals himself in human experience, uh, in the family, in emotion, in longing, mm. uh, in beauty, and in art. All of these things are ways in which God reveals himself to us. But Christianity and Judaism are historical religions, which means that if an exodus happens or if Christ dies on the cross, these are historical events. We have no access to them unless we were either there or if they have been handed down in history to us. Hmm. So one of the main functions of the Bible is to go beyond general revelation, what theologians call special revelation, which are the historic deeds hmm. uh, that God does on behalf of the human race. And I think that's the, that's the primary value of the scriptures. We couldn't know about those things hmm. unless we had either been there or somebody had told us yeah. about them. I have a quick question. Um, when you reference that the Bible... And I think this is where most people are going to go to in their minds. Um, when you say the Bible wasn't historically used to just answer moral or yeah. uh, like these like ethical questions we're asking it, uh, what do you mean exactly by that? Because that's how most people use it now, right? Sure. Like, that's what you're doing when you're like looking up YouTube videos about what does this verse mean? Does this mean I can't do that thing or that this thing? Or like, am I supposed to be baptized at this time or that time? Or like those kind of things, right? That's how we use it mostly. So what do you mean when you say that? Well, uh, I believe most 
broad moral and intellectual questions, a great many of them, can be answered using our own experience, our own reason, hmm. uh, things we have in nature. One thing that the Bible can do for us is to serve as a benchmark, because of course none of us are a world unto ourselves. Hmm. Uh, if we have a chain of reasoning uh, about a moral issue or an intellectual issue, the Bible can tell us whether or not Christians and Jews uh, corroborate our own thinking and reasoning. Hmm. That's valuable because a lot of times people do need um, to situate their thinking and their reasoning within an established uh, tradition. Hmm. Uh, and so even though um, we could probably reason and think without using the Bible as a crutch, it's still very useful in that way. Hmm. Unfortunately, though, I do think sometimes in Protestant circles, our reasoning and our thinking atrophies because we perhaps depend on the Bible almost too much, oh, if that makes sense. And we don't really learn to use our rational faculties. Hmm. So, um, you know, if we're talking about sexual ethics or marital hmm. ethics or things of that sort, mm -hmm. uh, we might think that the only reason a certain position obtains is because the Bible says so. Hmm. But there may actually be deeper reasons than that. Yeah. Uh, and it's valuable to know what those reasons are, especially in a, a secular democratic society, hmm. uh, since then we can actually argue with people yeah. using our reason and try to say, you know, we can believe that God exists. We can defend traditional familial values, hmm. and we can do so not only with the Bible, hmm. but we have reasons for accepting those things even outside the Bible. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. What would you say to somebody who, uh, when you say that... Um, this isn't like the purpose of the Bible, right? You can use your own logical reasoning faculties to discern a lot of these things. What would you say when someone would say, maybe a more traditional person, well, our minds are evil and corrupt and our ways are not God's ways, our thoughts are not his thoughts, that kind of stuff. Uh, it is true that the mind, um, like the whole human person, is, is darkened mm -hmm. uh, by sin. But um, I don't go so far as to say that it's so dark uh, that there's no light left in it. Mm -hmm. So there we get into a question of the doctrine of original sin of course. and the extent to which it impacts human persons. Yeah. Um, I belong to um, a tradition in which I think that um, human reasoning faculties, uh, though they are not infallible, mm -hmm. are still capable of revealing truth. Mm -hmm. I also believe that the human conscience, though not infallible, Paul even says, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me guiltless. Hmm. Uh, still, it is useful. Yeah. Um, so that's that's the approach that hmm. I take. Hmm. If I go any further down that road, I could end up in a very thick theological conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just talking. I was just talking earlier this week to someone about original sin and, and talking about. Well, the question was like if, and we talked about this for hours on our podcast. Of, yeah. yeah. Um, if a newborn or like a young child passes away tragically yeah are they going to hell because they didn't get a chance to repent mm -hmm. and i've always said no they're not like they didn't do anything wrong they have not done a sin and someone's like yeah but their nature is sinful i'm like yeah but they're not that baby who like maybe had a miscarriage or or like was two years old didn't make any moral choices to do anything and so we've always i went back and so someone would be like well what do you think about original sin and i'm like then you don't believe in original sin then well here's the Unless thing i would say yeah and so i was talking to this person i was like well I was like, I think it could be like, if a, if some doctrine of original sin says you're born muddy, like maybe sin is mud, mm -hmm. they would say you're born muddy. You're, I would say, well, I don't know. Maybe a baby's not born muddy, but they're born into a muddy world. And when they're born, when they sin, the mud gets on them mm -hmm. whenever that time comes. Sure. 
that but i mean but i was also like talking to them i was like i don't want to be a heretic though so i'm going to say that with like fear and trembling knowing i probably have a lot more studying to do but well i would be curious that's not on our list but i'm just curious like well your attitude is admirable because we should even when we do use our own reason we should always have a spirit of humility Hmm. uh and that goes back to checking our own thinking against the traditions of the church and uh, other oftentimes greater men than we Mm -hmm. (laughs) who have come before us. Uh, And I personally, uh, I don't think infants are going to hell. Um, Part of that has to do with how we think about original sin, but the other half of that is how far we think the grace of Christ reaches. Right, right. Um, Nobody is saved because of their deserving of it. Nobody deserves heaven. Hmm. Um, And so original sin, uh, the question can't be wholly asked there. The question has to do with how wide is God's grace? Um, and I kind of hang my head on something Paul says in Romans, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Uh, I'm not a universalist, but I do believe that the power of God's grace is greater than the sin of Adam. Mm-hmm. And so that is very, very important to me. And Paul seems to think that that's important too. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that verse with Adam is so interesting because the person who defends original sin would say, well, through Adam, all sin spread to all people. But in that same context, it says, and through Jesus, salvation or righteousness spreads to all people. Yeah. And so I'd wonder, they, but they have a different take on what all people means. It's like, okay, <clears throat> the sin is spreads to every human person, no matter your choice. But the salvation, they say, only spreads to those who accept Jesus, which is true in a sense. But mm. it, I, I've heard, I've talked to universalists, and they said like, we'll see if it spread if it goes from Jesus to everybody else. It seems to like they seem to have the same train of thinking or line of thinking there. Well, and that's another area where uh, discussions about how to interpret particular Bible passages are endless. Mm-hmm. Even for people who know the Greek and the Hebrew, you get into these hair-splitting discussions. Yeah. And there's an area where I think uh, analysis of the Bible alone probably cannot yield a perfect answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we do have our rational faculties, and we do have our conscience. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the Bible actually vouches for those uh, as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, If a person says that a just God would never bring a child into the world or allow a child to be brought into the world merely to send them to eternal damnation through no fault of their own, something in our moral nature revolts against that. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's okay. Um, uh, Our nature should revolt against that. Um, And not every Christian will agree with me, but... um, I think we should reject uh, those kinds of ways of looking at things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So you think that we shouldn't, like even though the Bible seems to say that just on its, its base reading, even though that's not necessarily what, what either of us believe, we have different <clears throat> views. Um, I don't actually think the Bible on a base reading actually says anything remotely like that. I think if you're if you're just yeah. a, a dude walking on the street, you pick up a Bible and you read some passages, you're like, seems like sinners go to hell forever. You know what I mean? Like it's pretty easy reading. <clears throat> well, some people read it that way, but um, I'd have to go on a person-by-person yeah. basis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think t- for most of those people, uh, back to school. Hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. that's a good answer. <laughs> I'd love to talk about original sin a little bit sure. and just see your quick overview of your view on it because I, Ethan says he believes in original sin but just has caveats. I want to do a thorough, in-depth discuss, like study on it and yeah. really, it's like my views on hell, right? Like I would probably mm-hmm. say like I lean annihilationist, mm-hmm. but I haven't done an in-depth, thorough, complete study that I would be like, here's all the biblical reasons why. Yeah. It just with the <clears throat> little bit I've studied, I'm like, this seems to make sense. So with original sin, I'd be like, maybe a version of it. Like I said, I don't mm-hmm. think people are 
maybe it just feels uncomfortable to say I disagree with it because I know it's such an agreed yeah. upon doctrine. Yeah. So I just am uncomfortable to say I don't agree with it. Mm. You know. And I don't agree with original sin because I don't <laughs> I don't see how Jesus is sinless um, and avoids the like the biological passing down of sin. Um, I don't see how babies can go to heaven. Or well, sin only comes through men, not women. And and but that's and, nowhere in the Bible. I know. Yeah. So <laughs> it's just interesting. Um, so yeah, I'd love to get your take. Not that we're going to debate or go super deep into it, but just your thoughts. Uh, well. Um, the earliest formulation of this doctrine in the West is St. Augustine. Hmm. Um, there is t discussion of it in the Greek church fathers, the first three centuries of the church. Hmm. St. Augustine is really the one who formulates it, and he does it in a dispute with Pelagius, a yeah. bishop from Britain uh, in the fifth century. And both of them take extreme positions. Hmm. Pelagius takes the extreme position that grace is not even needed for salvation. We, mm -hmm. we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Yeah. The church very quickly rejected that. Uh, but Augustine goes in the opposite extreme. And in some ways, Lutheranism and Calvinism are the direct descendants of Augustine. Mm -hmm. But in the centuries following, there are several mediating positions, one called semi-Pelagianism mm -hmm. and one called semi-Augustinianism. Mm -hmm. uh, I would belong to the semi-Augustinian camp that's formulated in the Council of Orange in the early Middle Ages, and it's a highly nuanced position, but maybe a way of explaining it is this way. Um, we do come into the world uh, corrupt. Mm -hmm. uh, that is the idea of original sin. But corruption is not the same thing as guilt. Hmm. So if you can think of an analogy, we are both active creatures, we do things. We're both passive creatures, things happen to us. If a child is born, say, to a drug-addicted mother, that child may come into the world corrupt in the sense that it has been impacted by the behavior of its mother. Hmm. But the child does not come into the world guilty hmm. because it actually hasn't done anything wrong. Hmm. So I believe yeah, it yeah, is yeah. possible to formulate a view in which you can say that you are corrupt and guiltless at the same time. Hmm. Uh, if you are corrupt and guiltless, then you are in a certain sense born into sin and uh, if you do live, you will, as my mother once said, own your own baggage down the mm. road at some point. But it does open the door for the grace of God to extend to that person, because even though they are corrupt, they aren't personally responsible for it. Mm. And I do think there's a number of scripture passages that can bear that out. For example, the book of Numbers draws a distinction in the 40 years in the wilderness between the adults who disobeyed God and the younger generation who had not yet come to the age of what the Bible calls accountability. Hmm. Mm -hmm. so there's a mouthful. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I, if I'm going to be honest, I thought the semi-Pelagian view was the one you just said. Ah. Can you explain what that one is for me? Uh, semi-Pelagianism means that you come to Christ, uh, so to speak, on your own. Mm -hmm. But then once you make that decision, you receive grace to hmm. then help you on your journey. Hmm. Semi-Augustinianism would argue that you actually need grace to come to Christ right. in the first place. Right. Okay. A term sometimes used there is prevenient grace, yep. grace that is given to all people. Mm -hmm. And then when you respond to that grace, you get yet more grace. Hmm. <laughs> uh, it falls short of the sort of uh, hardline predestinarian view, mm -hmm. but it also, um, it also does create a view in which grace is necessary at every stage in your spiritual development. Hmm. Pelagianism always has a little bit of a window in which you can do things on your own uh, without divine grace. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> I actually have written a whole paper 
like on this subject and am realizing that I got some stuff wrong that I got to go back and, and rewrite it. Well, don't take my word for it. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't put it, turned it in yet. That's good. But just all, off good. all the research I've done, I got to change. Like, I have to restart everything. We well, have several everything. thousand years of Christian history to weed through. It is not easy. Yeah. 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 And it's like a five page paper. So <laughs> it's not very long at all. So I don't have much time. But okay, that's super fascinating. I mm. love that. Mm. Let's transition a little bit into a, a discussion about faith versus reason. Uh, there's this guy I talked to, talked to him last night at last night, last night <laughs> at Pizza Night, which is a ministry that we do. And he's an atheist, hardcore atheist, mm -hmm. homeless guy. All he does is read Bart Ehrman and uh, like absurdist philosophers. Okay, that's all he does for fun. And the Bible. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the is, it, is it Terry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this, yeah, guy, this guy's Terry. awesome. He just, he re, he knows the Bible probably more than your everyday Christian. Yeah. Last time I was there, he was like, I, I asked him, every time I'm here, you always just like the whole time, just talk, 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 talk about why you're an atheist, why I should be an atheist the whole time without letting me have any space. I was like, next time I come, will you pretend to be the Christian and I can be the atheist? Because you seem to just know so much, right? And he's like, no, I can't do that. He's like, maybe if you bring me some Oreos, I'll do it. And I was like, yeah, I can bring you some Oreos. And so I brought him some Oreos last <laughs> night. And he pretended to be the, the Christian, and I pretended to be the atheist. Like he was trying to convince you to be a Christian? Yeah, or actually Danny was the atheist, and he was talking to him because I had to talk to somebody else. Mm -hmm. But he did it, which was really awesome for me to like to watch because he always just loves just disproving Christianity. He just likes debating and yeah, talking. Yeah, and so he did that. And one of the main things he kept saying as like the Christian was that whenever Danny would bring up the guy who was talking to him would bring up some kind of philosophical question or question against the Bible or God's sovereignty or his goodness or something. Uh, Terry would always say, well, you just, if he didn't have an answer, he'd say, well, you should have to have faith. That's just something you can't know. And you should just have faith and you shouldn't like reason through it or anything. And so I think this, this conversation between faith and reason is something that Christians disagree upon. And yeah. even just the definition of faith in general is something people flip flop on all the time, mm -hmm. right? What they think mm -hmm. that it means. And I've done the same thing. And I, at different times, hold different views or definitions of what I think faith is or does in my life. Um, but do you have any thoughts on sort of that battle back and forth between faith and reason? Uh, yeah, I, I tend to view faith and reason as um, two things that work together. Hmm. So I don't pit them against one another. Um, there are many different senses of the word faith. One of them, though, is trust. Hmm. Um, and I believe that there are good reasons to trust. Uh, so I don't say, well, trust versus reason. Hmm. Uh, even in ordinary human life, we do or do not put our trust in certain people. But we don't do so irrationally. Hmm. There may be reasons hmm. why this person is worthy of our trust and why uh, that person, we've been down that road and hmm. we've decided that we cannot really trust that person. Hmm. Those are all reasons. Uh, and in the same way, I think there are good reasons, um, three different levels of faith that are sometimes distinguished in classical theology, a sensus, uh, reasons to believe mm. that God exists. So I do think belief that God exists has reasons that mm. can support it. A second sense of the word faith, not a sensus, but fiducia, the Latin word, which means trust. Mm. Uh, there are reasons that if God exists, that we can trust him. Uh, that he is worthy of our trust. In fact, uh, strictly speaking, given the fallenness of human beings, he may perhaps be the only one we can hmm. fully trust. Uh, and that is very, very important. Uh, in thirdly, at the mystical level, uh, in two or, which is not often talked about outside of mystical liter 
mystical literature, um, the direct experience of God, um, not only by believing him or by trusting in him, uh, but by directly experiencing his presence in one's own life, which requires very much a whole giving over of oneself to the idea of God. Hmm. But I don't set any of these things outside the function of, of human reasoning. Hmm. Uh, in my own thinking, if I thought that there were good reasons to not believe in God, uh, then um, I wouldn't change my mind overnight, but I would have to wrestle with that. Mm. And if at the course of time I thought that the the right thing to do was to stop believing, then I would have to stop believing. Yeah. Um, and I'm okay with that. I've gone through that process. Uh, so I see them as two sides. To me, asking which is more important is like asking which half of a pair of scissors is more important. Mm. You kind of need both. Yeah. What is the role of faith then in your in your mind? Like if if your reason is the sort of thing that that rules uh, the decisions you make and all that kind of stuff, what role does faith play in that process? Well, reasoning is sort of stepping stones up mm -hmm. to faith. Okay. Faith requires a decision. Yeah. Uh, and once a decision is made, it it entails a risk mm. and it entails sacrifice. Those are things reason cannot do for us. Mm. And then those become tests, not of our reasoning, but tests of our integrity or our character mm. as a person. Um, a good person will discover in the course of time that they must have faith. Mm. Um, and a lack of faith, a disbelief in the good, a disbelief in trust, uh, is in a, in a way an, Im, an impugning of one's own self. Mm. Uh, you do not believe in the good. Mm. Um, a good man must believe in the good. Otherwise, how can he be a good man? Right. Uh, and so faith, in some ways, uh, picks up where reason leaves off. Mm. And um, speaking as an existentialist, that personal impassioned leap of faith, as mm. it were, crosses the boundary that reason cannot cross. But it doesn't mm. do so irrationally. Mm. It does so for definite reasons. Mm. Can you explain to people what existentialism is, just so they're not freaking out? Because in my mind, when I talk about existentialism, I think of somebody who doesn't believe in God and makes up their own value and meaning yeah. in the world. A lot of people think of Jean-Paul Sartre, the yeah. French philosopher exactly. who stole that wonderful word for himself, naughty Jean-Paul. Hmm. Uh, but at any rate, existentialism, if you think of the objective reasoner, the one uh, who thinks in a dispassionate, objective way, uh, Aristotle is kind of the prototypical philosopher um, who never gets personally involved. The mm. world is his theater. He sees everything as an object. Uh, but interestingly, we don't learn very much about Aristotle the man mm. <laughs> when, when we read his writings. The existentialist approach doesn't say that you cannot reason objectively, mm. but it says there is a whole other world of reasoning. In fact, the world of reasoning in which most people dwell, whether they realize it or not, in which we think not as an observer, but as a participant hmm. in the world of life of which we are a part. Hmm. Uh, and in a way, existentialism is simply recovering what people have always known all along. Socrates, in many ways, is an existentialist thinker. St. Augustine, hmm. in many ways, is an existentialist thinker. They don't use the language of existentialism, but in their reasoning, it's easy to see that they reason and think as participants in the theater of life. Hmm. They don't think of the world, and I'll stop here with this idea, as a container of objects, hmm. but as a stage for action. Hmm. And that is the world that all living beings inhabit. Hmm. 
I think that's such a hard thing for a lot of people to come to that have been, um, I don't want to use the word necessarily like indoctrinated, but have been so hardline on one view for such a long time <clears throat> to live in a, a theater like that or a stage where there's action is so much harder than just saying, this is what is reality. These are the objectives that I know. Um, it can't be difficult. I think it's particularly difficult for professional philosophers mm -hmm. and um, academics, but actually they live in that world quite regularly. Once right. they're done teaching, they take their head off, they go home and they're suddenly living in that world without thinking about it. Hmm. Um, so what I would encourage people who are professional academics, which is to say that they put their objectivity hat on mm -hmm. and then they take it off at the end of the day to realize that um, they actually reason this way quite a bit without hmm. realizing it. Hmm. <laughs> I think outside of even those people, just normal everyday people <clears throat> like Christians, they feel like they know what's true, absolutely. And then like they take that hat off <clears throat> but and like pretend I guess that when they have it on that they know everything and they take it off and it's just like, like you said, they're just living their normal life. Yeah. And when they start to deconstruct, I see this a huge, like a huge uh, portion of people who de deconstruct online do this. They say, all of a sudden, I now realize that like I can't know absolute truth and I'm in this sort of floating pool of like, uh, like uh, Nietzsche says, like floating up, down, sideways in all directions, right? Like, sure. like they're stuck in this, like, what can I believe? now that like objectivity is like completely gone. And I talk to a lot of people who deconstruct or come out of cults um, and they're like, how could I believe in anything again if I used to know it was true? And now it's so obvious to me that that wasn't true. Um, how can I live in this space of ambiguity almost? Like it's so hard to accept. It is, and that is a thing that happens to people. Um, I will say that the objective approach and the subjective approach, uh, kind of like faith and reason are not against one another. Uh, I consider myself an existentialist, but I love math and science and history, and I know how to think objectively. Mm -hmm. I also just know how to think the other way, too. As far as the doubt of whether or not objective truth uh, exists, I think that is easily dismissed. Um, mm -hmm. Just speaking as a logician, if I say the statement, there's no such thing as objective truth, is that statement true or false? Right. If it's true, well, I've just contradicted myself because I've made an objectively true statement. Mm -hmm. If it's false, then I've also asserted that there's objective truths. Mm -hmm. So um, I do teach a little bit of logic. That is a self-evident truth. Yeah. Now, a person may be confused about what that is, but I don't think they need to despair that it exists. Mm -hmm. It's self-evident that it exists. Mm -hmm. And so they just may need to get back on the road. Mm -hmm. And it may take many years. Mm -hmm. to find their way back to the main road. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. That's really okay. I think every genuine seeker after the truth has times of despair and difficulty. And mm -hmm. we should realize that that's normal, even mm -hmm. for Christians. Mm -hmm. I, For myself and people that I've talked to, I find it very comforting. And it is really hard to come to this realization. But I find it comforting that I can know the absolute truth exists, but I can also embrace my human finiteness and grow to be comfortable with the fact that I can't know absolutely what the absolute truth is, even though I know it exists. All I can do is use my reason and logic to hope I know that I've grasped it. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. Um, we are fallible and yeah. there's always a risk involved in the pursuit of truth. Um, and the more important the truths are, uh, the less formal certainty perhaps mm -hmm. we have of them. Mm -hmm. Mathematics and pure logic are the most certain of truths, but mm -hmm. they're trivial. They, they don't seem to matter all that much. Mm -hmm. And when we get to moral questions and religious questions, the gravity and importance of those truths increases mm -hmm. 
and it seems sometimes at least the formal certainty of them decreases in hmm. the same proportion. And that's where that stepping out is an important part of the reasoning process too. Hmm. Um, what are you willing, well Nietzsche says it, Kierkegaard says it, Sartre says it, all the existentialists say it, what are you willing to bet your life on? Hmm. Pascal says it. Hmm. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Pascal. Yeah. Talked about that last night too. Pascal? Yeah. Where last night? Oh, you were at with the pizza guy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah well, all that kind of like reminds me of whenever we talk to people who are deconstructing. I like to remind them, like, guys, it's totally okay to ask these questions, but don't think that that means that you have to abandon God. You know what I mean? Sure. Like, I I find it like I think what's really ha good is in Christianity we're allowed to ask questions and allowed to have these mm -hmm. things that we don't know. And and I I'm always reminded of Isaiah where it's like. Jesus says, your, my ways are not your ways. My ways are higher than your ways. And there's going to be these questions where you don't have the answers to. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, like how the Bible says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So that might mean there's an aspect of like, hey, you won't know. Mm -hmm. You're just not, there's some things you're not going to know. And what you have to rely on is falling back on the, the character of God that's revealed in the Bible. Mm -hmm. His love, his compassion, his mercy, his consistency, and like, yeah, you can't have all these, you can't have everything in life be black and white objective. Like this is this in every situation, right? Because at some point you're dealing with people. So mm. one thing that might apply. Well, I want to say a word about that because the mm. question you asked me earlier, without faith, it's impossible to please God. That's mm. out of the book of Hebrews. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, I think, I'll see if I can uh, tease out the question that you asked earlier. Um, a lot of times people ask, if God wants us to believe in him, why doesn't he reveal himself more obviously? Mm. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a good answer to that. We usually think of faith as something in and through which we get some other good. Mm. But it may well be the case, I believe it is the case, that faith is the good. Interesting. That faith is the good that God wishes to give us. In other words, to live an existence in which we have trust trust that goes beyond merely demonstrable evidence hmm. is actually the happiest life, is hmm. actually the best life. Insofar as God wants to give us the good life, it would destroy his own purposes to give us absolute certainty because hmm. then he would deprive us of the very best thing that we could possibly have, which is faith. That's fascinating. Mm. Wow, that's good. Wow. And then the question would be, someone could come back with, would be, well, why does it have to be then faith in the Christian God? Why can't faith in the Islamic God be just as rewarding? And is that from the true God as well? Kind of maybe a universal question about that. Sure. Uh, the answer to that would be that uh, in a broad sense, it doesn't have to be. You, you couldn't know that in advance. Hmm. You want to believe in, to, to go back to uh, sort of platonic categories, hmm. you want to believe in the good. You want to believe in the good. And in your own spiritual journey, your journey of faith, finding out what it is that you can trust, you should examine these other worldviews. You should examine Islam and Judaism and Christianity and Buddhism mm -hmm. and Hinduism. Um, the Christian will claim, and I would claim, that the only God capable of adequately satisfying the demands of faith is the God of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Now, someone may doubt that. But that will be my testimony. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'll say, well, let's argue about it. So they may say, well, I don't know in advance. And that's perfectly all right. You don't mm -hmm. need to know in advance. Mm -hmm. But the important thing is that the argument is not uh, what the Greeks called an heuristic. An heuristic means arguing for the sake of arguing, but not out of a real desire to get at the truth. Mm 
hmm. something Socrates said about the sophists. And a lot of people I dispute these matters with engage in what I call heuristics. They, they just like to bicker. Hmm. Uh, at a certain point, they're going to be morally accountable for whether or not they're actually pursuing the truth or whether they're just stirring up difficult questions. Hmm. Uh, and so I, I don't mind addressing the questions, but I'd have to say, well, at a certain point, it's going to be on that person to pursue their own spiritual journey and see, mm-hmm. see how it turns out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about faith and how it's sort of placed on top of the building blocks of logic <clears> and the <throat> things we put together, and then we, be, we begin to trust once yes. we have those things put together. And we talked about a, a little bit of like why Christianity versus these other religions and the value of faith. What do you think are those building blocks, or what is the best maybe building block, your favorite building block for uh, the thing that you put your faith on. Why do you believe in God? And what is the best argument for him, in your opinion? Or maybe just your favorite argument for him? Uh, for me, the, the most fundamental basis of belief in God is, is just a direct experience of God's goodness and presence and activity in one's life. Hmm. To that extent, most people who have ever believed in God have not been philosophers. Hmm. All of the logic and the thinking and the reasoning that we as philosophers, we pull all that stuff apart that's because we're highly analytical persons. But those things are already operative in the mind of the ordinary lay person, whether they know it or not. Uh, and then on top of all of that, most people come to believe in God, not as the result of some rational argument, but as a result of real changes uh, in their own personal existence um, that are meaningful and powerful for them. Hmm. And so I always try to remember that because though I am a philosopher and a teacher, I don't want to become so detached from the uh, ex- the healthy experience of the ordinary person that we turn faith into something that it, that it never was. Hmm. Uh, having said that, there are good arguments to show the doubting believer or the doubting atheist that belief in God is perfectly reasonable. Hmm. Um, and so some of my favorite arguments are uh, the moral argument for hmm. God's existence, um, William Lane Craig has gotten an awful lot of mileage out of the cosmological argument, yes, which some people said was dead, hmm. uh, and it's clearly not dead. Yeah. Um, the um, ontological argument, surprisingly, uh, Alvin Plantinga has mm-hmm. breathed new life into. Hmm. And while it is a strange argument, I've always thought it was sound, and hmm. I've always thought it was valid. It's hmm. just very, very strange. Yeah, I'd <laughs> love to talk about that, yeah. It's a very, very good argument. Uh, C.S. Lewis's argument from desire um, seems hmm. very close uh, to Pascal's wager, or close to the existentialists, actually, that if we're born with desires that are um, that that tell us we're fitted for life beyond what the present world offers us, then we have prima facie reason to suppose that there is some good that um, satisfies that desire. Hmm. So there's, these are all different kinds wow. of arguments. Some are more practical, some more theoretical, some more experiential. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that argument from desire. I'm going to have to look more into that. I know I've read <laughs> C.S. Lewis when he talks about it. I just haven't focused in on it enough in, the, in those times. So mm-hmm. I'm going to have to look into it. And when I teach Alvin Plantinga's uh, view of the ontological argument, one thing that a student said to me one time, I haven't fully answered for myself, so I'd love to get your opinion on it, just as a quick drive-by. Sure. Um, Maybe I have the setup of the question wrong, but I usually I'll teach the cosmological argument, and then I'll go to uh, the ontological argument after that, because cosmology doesn't necessarily get you to a god, even though you could infer some things off of it, just like the Kalam itself doesn't necessarily get you, you to You get a, a first cause. Yeah, you get a first cause. <laughs> and so 
most people like I pushed back and have said, well, the, the two things that I could be is either matter being infinite and being the cause or some kind of uh, designer being that cause, mm-hmm. some kind of uh, aware thing, right? People posit that's God, right? And so I go from there to like, okay, well, we think it's God because of the ontological argument. And people have pushed back and said, well, why couldn't, based off of that argument, uh, just a, like if we can envision matter being the objective thing, and mm-hmm. matter is like sort of God in this instance, why couldn't matter be the answer to the ontological argument and then all of it? Um, to both of those arguments, um, we'll start with the ontological argument. Uh, the, the first response, I guess, would be you're arguing for a, a supremely perfect being. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that matter satisfies the criterion hmm. of supremely perfect being. I think we can all imagine better things mm-hmm. um, than the, the material world is inherently imperfect hmm. comes into being passes away um, and so that's the first thing and a similar thing with the cosmological argument Craig is very careful to link it to the Big Bang hypothesis mm-hmm. because what that enables him to do is to I, since the Big Bang is the origin of space time and matter hmm. it enables him to argue that the first cause is spaceless timeless and immaterial mm-hmm. Uh, in which case it certainly cannot be matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, not all Christians accept the Big Bang hypothesis, but mm-hmm. his argument is powerful. That is the that is the accepted theory, cosmological mm-hmm. origins right now in the scientific community. Mm-hmm. Given that as a starting point, where does space, time, and matter come from? Well, they can't mm-hmm. come from anything spatial, temporal, and material. Mm-hmm. And so the first cause must be something, to use an old expression, uh, metaphysical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> that's awesome hmm. uh, quick question going off of that yep. I want to go back to it too but this question will only be relevant if you don't believe if you do believe in evolution do you believe in evolution uh, in some sense of the word evolution okay. is a word that means different things of course. to different people macro uh, the idea though well I, I'm not even as interested in the mechanism through mm. which uh, life uh, evolves on the planet I think that's mm. still up in the air and I don't know that the scientific community has yet come up with an adequate explanation to all of those questions. Hmm. The idea, though, that more complex life forms are related to simpler life forms um, over an extended period of time, mm-hmm. and that there is a genetic relationship between all living things on Earth, uh, I think there's very strong evidence for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one can affirm that without necessarily committing oneself to an idea of exactly how that process took place. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I still think um, we know more than we used to, but there's an awful lot of gaps hmm. uh, in our knowledge of that. So I, I'd be cautious. I'm cautious about the word evolution because it's, it's a word one throws out and people mean different things by it, and they mm-hmm. immediately assume that you, therefore, must mean this, that, and the next. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I limit myself to the statement that we, in a as complex biological organisms, are related in some way by descent, Mm-hmm. to simpler life forms that came before us. Hmm. Okay. The question that I've been thinking about so much <clears throat> over the last three months, I think, the, like the main question on my mind, because I've been going back and forth. I'm just not smart enough, honestly, at this point. I don't have enough time to look into, uh, you know. The, Join the club. The creationists, the ID, <laughs> the uh, the evolutionary 
like kind of people. I'm yeah. just don't have enough time to look into all of it. But I've been going back and forth on the, the evidence forum, just trying to get gain a grasp a little bit. And the main argument that I've heard against uh, Christians or theists that believe in evolution is that there's so much suffering that happens pre Adam and Eve through evolution. Like the the purpose of um, of survival of the fittest has like the most suffering in it. And so yes. why would God create a system like evolution that we all grow up in, basically, if that is one that's based off of suffering? Sure. So Especially um, pre-sin. Certain ways of thinking about the origin of the universe, Christians are going to want to say that death in a biological sense is a result of the fall. Hmm. Uh, if the evolutionary hypothesis is true, then, of course, we're going to have to put death as a part of the natural cycle, mm -hmm. the order of nature. And uh, bees and animals, and Christians don't often think of this, microorganisms, mm -hmm. of which there are three trillion on your body right now as we speak, mm -hmm. those are living and dying. Mm -hmm. um, and so all of that's going to be going on as part of the natural cycle. Then, of course, the follow-up question is, is whether that involves a degree of suffering that is incompatible with God's goodness. Mm. I personally don't think so. Um, now, this is an area that we enter into some speculative territory, but we're entering into questions of to what extent animals are conscious of and experience mm -hmm. pain. Mm -hmm. Doubtless, they experience pain in some measure, yeah. but uh, lacking the consciousness of humans, we're talking about extended experience of pain, fear, and suffering, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, I'm not convinced that that's a huge problem hmm. within the animal kingdom. But that, that would require a, a book-length treatment. In fact, I yeah. think C.S. Lewis devotes whole chapters to mm -hmm. the, the subject of animal pain in his book, The Problem of Pain, because mm -hmm. uh, he's sensitive to that objection himself. And C.S. Lewis was himself a British evolutionist, so mm -hmm. he knew that he would have to forge an answer to that question. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think the, the only argument I've heard that was good besides the one you just presented was one from consciousness, which you kind of spoke to as well. And people would just say that it wasn't until uh, the creation story that humans, um, or you could say anything, if you believe animals have uh, souls as well, gained consciousness. And that at the point of consciousness, that's when suffering could begin. Um, so people would just, people would just say that animals without consciousness or humans evolving wouldn't have gained consciousness. So they wouldn't have, gone through suffering until the point that the creation story begins or whatever point that narrative begins yeah. in history. You know or at I mean? least something that could be called intolerable mm -hmm. suffering. There are mm -hmm. forms of pain and suffering that are fairly tolerable. Yep. Um, but as we, all, as we do know, uh, as the consciousness of an organism goes up, the capacity to experience suffering rises with it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, was that argument linking suffering to consciousness as if like if you don't have a degree of consciousness you aren't suffering sort of yeah it was just saying that the significance of the suffering they were just saying it could be that the significance of the suffering isn't of super like of the type of importance unless you have consciousness so it would mm. there still is suffering that happens but maybe it's less because there isn't consciousness right yeah, you're not aware of it going on yeah but i feel like that's still I might, might answer the question like, yeah, that person's not suffering, but there's still people could be unconscious and have moral evils done to them. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that plays into that. But they wouldn't experience suffering if they're unconscious. 
But then you can justify a lot of things as long as someone's unconscious. I mean, if they're never going to gain consciousness again. Like if someone's like, in a sense, like just, I guess, like, like, like a baby in the womb is like, has levels of, of consciousness. Yeah. And they would say, people who are pro-choice would say, oh, it's okay to end that baby's life because it hasn't attained mm. the right amount of consciousness. Mm, mm. And so I was just thinking like, as a, for argument's sake, mm. I just don't know if I would lean on that because that might validate some pro-choice thing. I but think- then you could push against it and say, well, no, we can still be pro-life and have this because mm. humans are given commands to uphold life. I think the problem with all of that is that, no, but, but part of it is that you're saying one person who is conscious is like doing a moral evil to someone who isn't conscious. Yeah. Where in this example, nobody is conscious. And so there's no one oh, doing no evil one. to somebody. Okay. Everything is unconscious or doesn't have consciousness, right? And mm. it's not until the creation story that consciousness is gained and the possibility for good and evil enters the world. Mm. Which is what some like... The Aesthetic Evolutionist would say. Interesting. Yeah. You could devote a whole podcast to that. I was going to say, yeah. what, do you have any yeah. thoughts on that? <laughs> well, yes. I, that's a podcast uh, length thing worthy of treatment. For those who are interested in the subject, I you know, I would suggest reading The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis just because he does address the problem. So few theologians do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, sweet, too. And it's, it's a good place, at least to start mm-hmm. an investigation. Mm-hmm. 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 Absolutely. So we've talked about why you do believe in God and what some of those pillars, right? Sure. Are there good arguments you think against God or at least problems that Christians could, could consider? Um, I know everybody always talks about the problem of evil. Um, we talked about hiddenness a little bit as well. Um, I can bring up some specific examples if you want, but is there anything off the top of your head? Well, the um, problem of evil has generally been, traditionally been considered the strongest argument mm-hmm. against God God's existence. We've talked about that. Uh, the absence of evidence argument doesn't really appeal to me as very strong because for me there are so many different kinds of evidences and they're usually just thinking of visual evidence hmm. um, but there are there are theoretical evidences there are practical evidences there are aesthetic evidences mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for me God's existence um, is 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 obviously true mm-hmm. uh, that he exists it's a result of narrowness of thinking bad education anger and frustration and other uh, mm. speaking of bias getting in the way of our pursuit of truth that's often laid at the feet of christians but i have found it more often uh something i lay at the feet of atheists mm. of narrowing their vision down to a small number of things and arguing very passionately uh, angrily mm. and upsettedly about things that that doesn't help us get to the truth yeah yeah uh, so many arguments against god's existence i simply don't find uh, very persuasive. Yeah. Even though yeah. as a young person, I did struggle with them, hmm. but that wasn't because the truth wasn't um, persuasive. It was because I, in my uh, undeveloped uh, state, in the inadequacy of my thinking, hmm. um, wasn't doing justice to the truth. Hmm. So I, I own that as a token not of the weakness of arguments for God's existence, but the weakness of my rational capacity hmm. as a young man. Hmm. Hmm. what's really interesting is thinking about the problem of evil Uh, like if your question is like does god exist in light of this evil you could ask okay well you know evil exists so does god exist you could say well what do you mean by evil and so if you define evil you'd be like well evil would be not good okay so what is good and and then if as you start to extrapolate what is good i think you'd ultimately come to a picture of a God and a Christian God. Mm-hmm. And though, so then you could probably talk yourself into it. Cause then if there's no God that exists, like we talked about, like the, the, like the cosmological <coughs> argument, the, mm-hmm. the first 
thing, the uh, unmoved mover and whatnot, you would come to like what evil is contrasted against good. So there's some there, there's something called goodness, and what is the source of that goodness? Mm-hmm. And where how do we know that that thing is the source of goodness? What does that measure up to? Mm. You know, as you talk about that, and I would think as you like evil existing might be evidence that actually God does exist because if God didn't exist, you wouldn't have grounding to call anything evil, going back to the moral argument. Mm-hmm. I think I see exactly what you're saying. Uh, in logic, <clears throat> anytime you posit a term, let's say A, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. in the same breath posit what's called its complement, not A. Mm-hmm. And you can't say A without saying not A, and mm-hmm. you can't say not A without saying A. Mm-hmm. You can substitute a term for that variable. Mm-hmm. If there is good, there is not good. Let's mm-hmm. call it evil. Mm-hmm. If there is evil, there is not evil. Call it good. Uh, and whatever one thinks of his philosophical project, uh, the use of compliments as a foundation for knowing things is pursued aggressively by G.W.F. Hegel uh, mm. and belongs to what he calls dialectical thinking. As soon as you assert one thing, you necessarily assert the opposite. And to that extent, I'm not a Hegelian, mm. but I think um, he's not wrong. <laughs> mm. mm-hmm. Very interesting. <clears throat> um, what is the term for evil being a oh, pervasion do you believe in pervasion uh pervasion is like or the theory of pervasion is that darkness doesn't actually exist it's just the absence of light uh kind of okay dealing with yeah, what you were saying. Yeah, no. for the a and b kind of thing yes right? it's the absence of light so it's not light so that yeah so basically saying that evil doesn't have to exist in an absolution when god exists outside of his creation evil wouldn't exist with him he would just be all good, and it's not until he creates that pervasion can like yeah. come into the picture. Sure. An example is kind of like you can exist without cancer in your body, and just because you don't have cancer doesn't mean you have to have cancer. Correct. So just because you have goodness doesn't mean you have Because remember your A, B thing, someone could say, okay, well, if you say God exists, then not God would have to exist, or like they would do one of those. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, so that's a good point. Dialectical thinking isn't actually put constraints on what can or cannot be. Mm-hmm. It put constraints on what we can know. Mm. So as soon as we have knowledge of a thing, we have knowledge of its opposite because knowledge mm. is through difference. Interesting. Um, so you're quite correct. Um, just because God exists from eternity doesn't mean that evil exists. Mm-hmm. But if we know what evil is, then we might also have to know that God exists. And the Bible expresses this very profoundly when it says that Adam did not know the difference between good and evil. Because hmm. he had yeah. no experience of evil. Interesting. Yeah, which I always find interesting when we're talking about the creation story is that that God's command was don't eat from the knowledge of tree or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yes. And if, when you stop and look at it, you're like, wait, that was actually only the tree of the knowledge of evil because all he had was goodness. Well, so yes. So it's kind of like, well, all he was doing was introducing evil because he lived in perfect unity with God, and so there will. It was just good. Now, he didn't have the label for that because he didn't know the contrast. Correct. But it's really interesting to think about, like, oh, that was actually only introducing evil. Does, does a fish know it's wet? Hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's it's living in the water. And mm-hmm. Adam was completely immersed in the good. So he neither knew evil. But in a profound sense, he didn't know good either because good simply yeah. what is what was. Mm-hmm. Right. That's good true. That makes sense. Very yeah, that's a that's a profound idea. The Bible contains those kind of ideas thrown in there. But back to the mm-hmm. starting point, mm-hmm. it's a criterion not of what can or cannot be, but it is a criterion of knowledge. Mm-hmm. As soon as we know something, and so expressed in logic, A, whatever you want to put in that variable, we must know the opposite. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. Cool. I do have another question, but I don't know if we have enough time. We have 10 minutes. So if we can get through the question, answer, and a little bit of thank yous, then... In 10 minutes? Okay. Yeah. Well, I, we can try. <laughs> so uh, you brought up good and evil. I talked about pervasion, and you answered like that kind of question. A ton of people that come on the show or talk to us on the show uh, talk about God creating us better than we currently are, right? And you were yeah. saying like Adam... And this is kind of where this question goes. Adam was like a fish who didn't know he was wet, right? With the knowledge of good and evil aspect yes. of it. Um, and so it's always been my opinion that like humans always had to sin and always had to fall because we're created in the best possible world that exists. Mm. And I, I choose that because so many people will say, well, why didn't God just not create Satan? Or why didn't God just not let him go to the garden? Or why didn't God just create us in heaven and not in the garden in the beginning? That's a really easy 10-minute question. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Do you have any oh, yeah. quick thoughts on that? Because there's so many other topics already. I thought maybe we could Oh, uh, yeah. Well, let me see if I can uh, throw something out there. Uh, first, I'll begin with a caveat. This, this is a tough question. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then whatever I say, there will be a million rejoinders. So this is by no means intended as an all sufficient answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think creating man innocent, which is to say ignorant of good and evil, is a is the creation of is is a perfect being. Hmm. And innocence is a state of perfection. And it's not something that we are fated to lose. We don't have to lose our innocence. In fact, there is good reason to believe that Jesus Christ the only person who never lost his innocence, hmm. um, which gives us a profound window of insight, perhaps, into what it, what it would be like to be Christ. He was innocent. He had no knowledge of evil. Um, and that's what makes him perfect. Now, did man have to sin? Uh, I don't think formally, if he's free, there's no reason why he would, why he would have to. Um, if he did sin, God in his omniscience would know it. And so the question can still be raised whether it would have been better for God to create than not. Hmm. But um, one issue is, is the best of all possible worlds the world as it was in the days of Adam? Or is hmm. the best of all possible worlds the end result of a process God set into motion there? Exactly. Hmm. Um, and I think we do have that idea in the Bible, because hmm. especially if, God, if Adam was created mortal, hmm. Then, like Christ, who's often called a second Adam, he was always meant to attain perfection on the other side of death, Mm -hmm. Uh, just as a caterpillar Mm -hmm. uh, turns into a butterfly. It may Mm -hmm. well be the case that what makes death terrifying is not that it's biological death, but that the the purpose of life has been lost. The connection with God has been lost, and that is what makes death truly death. Mm -hmm. It's just a wall, and human life ends Uh, with unanswered questions. Hmm. But if Adam had never fallen away, uh, there's good reason to think that he may simply have uh, fallen into a deep sleep Hmm. and awoken to uh, the the resurrection Hmm. that was the end in the best possible world for which the current order of creation was always intended. Hmm. That's a different way of thinking, though, because a lot of times Christians think death was never a part of God's good creation. It just Hmm. sort of came in they're thinking of biological death, yeah. not spiritual death. Uh, but uh, Christians, as far back as the Greek, the Greek tradition in the East, had always believed that Adam was mortal, and that death was not inherently bad. In fact, hmm. it was always hmm. going to be a passing through. Wow. Wow. Uh, and that's a that's kind of a for many Christians that's a mind blower because they're mm. just not used to thinking of it that way. Yeah. Yeah. But we see many examples in nature of beautiful things that come out of the natural oh. cycle of life and death. Of course. Yeah. <clears throat> 
That's fascinating. Can you talk just a little bit more about that in like the few minutes that we have? Because I imagine there's going to be so many viewers who are like, yeah, kind of he reeling. Just, at... A whole bomb just went off. They're like, what are we? Well, doing? the only thing yeah. I'll say is the best, <laughs> if you're wondering about what to think about that, the best place to go is the life of Jesus in Nazareth. Hmm. Um, he was created mortal. Mm-hmm. And death was certainly not something that he was never intended to do. Hmm. Uh, death and resurrection were part. Uh, and, and if he is the perfect man, then he is the model of what all of us were intended to be. Now, granted, if man had never fallen, the the passion, the suffering uh, would not have been necessary. Hmm. Um, and so uh, Adam would not have had to experience that. But Paul draws a very close relationship between Adam and, Adam and Jesus. Hmm. And I think um, we need to meditate on that quite a bit. Um, it is important in the New Testament that Jesus died hmm. uh, and that he rose again, not just as a little bit of um, divine flexing, look what I can do, hmm. but more as an expression of this is what all mankind is intended to do. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Do you think <clears throat> that comes into the problem of pain existing before the fall then, or would death just be painless? Or Yeah, death would have to be... Even if it weren't painless, it would have to be a tolerable amount of pain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I have four kids. Their life isn't painless, but mm-hmm. much of it is tolerable. And mm-hmm. a lot of it is quite good for them. Yeah. So we need to not be purists and think that in a perfect world there's no pain whatsoever. I love that. Uh, a a mm-hmm. good God can allow some degree of pain. Mm-hmm. And some degree of pain is actually quite good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it wouldn't be intolerable pain. Mm-hmm. And it wouldn't be um, pain. We're usually thinking of extreme, awful right forms of pain which in all fairness if you look don't come from nature mm. they come from human beings human mm. beings are masters of creating pain mm-hmm. yeah i've always thought that and we have podcasts on heaven and i think that there'll be an amount of pain in heaven as well because i feel like you lose a lot of the joys of life if you don't have some amount of risk or pain or strife um, or struggle right um, well back to what we said earlier if you didn't have pain you would not be able to know pleasure yeah yeah, true. It's true. <laughs> and like part of what makes skydiving so fun is the reality that you could die. Uh, Socrates were... observes that in the yeah. Phaedo right before he drinks the poison cup. He's feeling pain in his legs. Mm. Plato writes about that in the early dialogues. So. Mm. Wow. Very interesting. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I think that's all the time we have. Yeah, we're ending a little bit early, which is good. Um, I have to meet my wife and our, and our in-laws, but not... When I say in-laws, people think parents, but like my sister-in-law. I don't know how to phrase it. I'm only in my second year. Just call them your relatives. Relatives? (laughs) Yeah. Good compromise. There we go. Yes. Well, we got to get out of here with you. Yeah, this is great. I'm glad you invited me. Uh, This Mm -hmm. is good. I know I talked your ears off, but it was a lot of fun. No, we appreciate it. I could do it for another three hours. Yeah, we could. If we had time, we would just keep sitting down reeling. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. All right. Well, everybody, thank you for coming back again. Send us to someone who needs it and help them find Christ. And Chad, thank you so much for coming on and looking forward to the next time you're in Honolulu. Thanks for having me. Cheers.